what's now being worked out is this notion of um, keeping a patient well, keeping them, them out of the hospital and actually no longer making the physical location where the doctor is the center of care. Irrespective of whether it's telehealth or just the dynamic that COVID introduces of reduced contact between a physician and their patient, and then how we use data and how we deliberately design services to drive at the best outcomes for the patient and also for our commercial objectives. Pharma is trying to find ways of how can we almost kind of create separation within our own company so that we can have bits of the company where we are able to move quickly with those partnerships and be innovative and not have all the risk associated with it. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates podcast. My name is Jennifer Curtis, and I'm your host. Today, we're going to have a panel discussion on the implications of COVID for our future healthcare world. We're looking at this from the lens of pharmaceutical and medtech companies. We want to explore COVID not just as a unique event and implications specific to it, but more the wider trends that we anticipate playing out and how that will lead to a fundamental shift in how pharmaceutical and medtech companies will engage with customers. Some of the trends that we will be exploring include evolving commercial models, new definitions of value, and the rise of telemedicine. What does this mean today for pharmaceutical and medtech companies and how they need to prepare and invest to win in the future? To explore these questions, I'm joined by three of my colleagues who have been leading efforts across the firm to help companies anticipate and plan for evolving business models. Yeah, this is Brian Chapman. Um, I am a partner based in Switzerland. Um, I lead the medtech practice for our firm and I have uh, actually been uh, working in the space for 16 years. And this is uh, Mark Saunders. I'm a partner based in London and I'm a member of our client service council, which um, supports all of our major pharma um, clients uh, running uh, their day-to-day -day work. And as part of that, I, I lead our relationship with one of our large accounts. And hi, my name's David Jackson, uh, also based in London, also a partner, and I'm uh, leading some of our global accounts and often working with the commercial operations function, so often at this interface between customer-facing teams, analytics, and uh, sales force processes. Great. So let's start looking very broadly. Imagine we're five years ahead from today. What's going to drive pharmaceutical and med tech success? I think there's going to be a component of patient decision-making, which becomes significantly higher across a broader number of different therapy areas. We're already seeing patient choice going up because of increased access that patients have to data and the increasing role that they have in actually paying for some of their treatments. But I think this will also only rise as we have portfolios that are full, more full, that can cover all of the different patient needs and therefore patients will be able to choose based on different features than just the clinical benefit of the drug. And in addition, through COVID, we've seen an increase in telehealth, which is going to be here to stay based on a bunch of data that we see, seeing about 10% of patients engaging in telehealth previously, NAP now going up almost fourfold, and we project that being maybe uh, threefold in the future. You know, I think Mark, that's great. Um the the patient side is is absolutely something that at the moment we see patients are 
not presenting. They're not coming to, they're not seeing their doctor. They're not keeping their appointments. They're not interested in procedures. Um, and even if that, even when that calms down and we get back to closer to a, a more normal situation, I think we still uh, absolutely see the need to engage with the patient, make them comfortable um, with the therapy and comfortable with the choices is, is going to um, be an important part. I guess I also wanted to add in the med tech perspective, um, I think one of the things that we're, we're learning um, that, that's really come as a result of this crisis, but it, it's um, going to be even more important is being very clear on the value. Here I'm gonna talk about an intervention, a procedure, but being clear on the value of that procedure. Um, there are many alternatives and having uh, eyes wide open around what the outcome is going to be, what the likelihood of success, potential complications, those previously, the, the doctor made all these choices and the payer funded it. And I think we're, we're now going to see both of those assumptions start to be much more wide open. So success in the future is going to be connecting outcomes and, and eventually value to those interventions. So we, we've talked about broad themes from each of the responses. So, so Mark, you were talking about patient choice and the, the rise of telehealth as a result of that. Brian, you, you talked about this idea of value and needing to connect um, outcomes to, to specific values. I think these are, these are trends that we definitely see in a few different areas. Let's deep dive on the first one, which is telehealth. So let's look at that as an emerging trend. Um, what are some of the signals that we're starting to see that, that this is really going to lead to a shift in, in the current market? Well, maybe to start with, I mean, just some things that we're already seeing. So we're seeing regulations being relaxed towards towards telehealth and more payers um, starting to, to reimburse telemedicine. Um, we're saying from some research that we've done that, as I said, 17% of doctors are currently using telemedicine, but um, that's expected to arise long term to over 40, 50%. Um, and we're also seeing an increased setting of appointments and increased use of apps that are going up two, threefold as a consequence of COVID. So there's a lot of indicators that are COVID driven, but then there's a lot of discussions and feedback that we're getting that this is here to stay. I think it's actually, it's a different story at different stages in the, the patient journey. Certainly for a lot of conditions, you can imagine a lot of kind of maintenance of existing conditions via, via telehealth. I think the biggest questions that our uh, pharma companies are, are wrestling with is for initiations and switches, so for those kind of key steps within the patient journey that often at the moment, or at least up to now, have been kind of via face-to-face -face consultations, how much of that is going to switch to telehealth and telemedicine? And a component of it is switching to telehealth, then what, what can I do to support those interactions and make sure that the right decision is made for a patient? And I think that that bleeds into a different large overarching trend of using artificial intelligence to make decision making when it comes to treatment. And so, as we know, medical knowledge is doubling at an, an unbelievable rate. It's a matter of, I think, tens of days that our medical knowledge just, just doubles the consequence of the uh, intelligence that we have, the data that's available to us, et cetera. And so we are going to move just in general from relying on a physician's knowledge to make a treatment to relying increasingly on data to do that. That doesn't mean that the physician doesn't have a huge role to play in the outcomes of that patient, but it will shift. There is also a shift in how comfortable we are in providing our data to the healthcare system that COVID has accelerated. And so I think a combination of these things will mean that in general, 
we're going to be throwing more and more of our personal medical data and more broad health data into the system and then allowing the system to decide what our um, treatment should be as a result. And I think that will get into the naive group and it will get into the specialty care group, certainly um, within the sort of five year time frame that we, we started framing this with. And thinking a little bit about telehealth, I think it's, um, it can be tempting to be narrow and think about that as an interaction between a patient and a clinician over some sort of video chat. And of course that is part of it, but there's a whole lot more that we're learning now around the notion of actually understanding and keeping tabs on patients when they're not directly in front of you. So here I wanna talk about um, the ability to actually embed diagnostics, the ability to put diagnostics in the home, the ability of simply to use devices that we might otherwise be wearing um, like a watch to understand more about health conditions. This is something that for a long time, it was maybe a tech company's dream to dominate this enormous data source. But what we've seen is that actually a lot of these capabilities are able to keep patients out of the hospital. And at a time when going to the hospital has a lot more ramifications than just cost, we're suddenly saying, wow, those capabilities I had before, like how can I turn those on? Um, but I think longer term, you know, we work out a lot of the payments, we work out a lot of the, um, should I pay a doctor to review data? How do I make sure that that, that that data is actually giving me a meaningful signal? Mark mentions AI as a big part of that. Um, what's now being worked out is this notion of um, keeping a patient well, keeping them, them out of the hospital and actually no longer making the physical location where the doctor is the center of care. I think that's the part for me, which is the trend that's, that's the thing that's here to stay. So if that's here to stay, what does that mean about how the industry should be focusing in order to prepare for that? What I get excited about is actually, for the most part, outcomes about patients and their current general condition is very site-specific and really doesn't follow a patient well at all. Um, in my world where there are interventions, you replace a knee, um, it could be you could replace a heart valve. It can be very difficult to understand the impact of an intervention on long-term care because of the fragmentation of the data about a patient's well-being. So what, what I, I get excited about is the ability to make much smarter decisions, to bring feedback to surgeons, to understand under which conditions different interventions led to a much better quality of life. So I'm excited about the opportunity for all of this data to end up leading to better decisions. Now, what does it mean on, on the sort of the current world of, of telehealth? You know, we, we talk about um, what's happened as a result of COVID is that payment models have changed. Um, people have woken up to a lot of the capabilities that were not being used. So I think there's a, there's a bright future in terms of really connecting decisions and choices made with the, their eventual outcomes. I think there's a component, um, irrespective of whether it's telehealth or just the dynamic that COVID introduces of reduced contact between a physician and their patient, and then how we use data and how we deliberately design services to drive at the best outcomes for the patient and also for our commercial objectives. And I think pharma focusing increasingly there, whether it be an adherence campaign, because I was previously giving you a pack every three months and I'm now giving you a pack every six, or whether it's something that's a bit more like a home diagnostic for a specific treatment. I think there's a lot of plays that are gonna to have to come now, bringing the site of care, bringing the site of diagnosis and bringing the site of ongoing support closer to the patient as a result. 
I think the other thing that we need to watch out for, whether it's pharma company um, or more broadly, is the engagement that I have with a human on a human level massively impacts the outcomes because the medical, the determinant of my health is partly the, the drug, it's partly the service, it's also the state of mind that I get from interacting with the people I interact in my healthcare network. And so telehealth will change that slightly and increasing the periodicity between visits to the HCP will do that as well. What would we be suggesting then to, to the typical kind of pharma client or, or med tech client that may have not been investing in this as much? So my view is that there's, a, there's an enormous prize to keeping the patient out of the hospital. And um, what that, or let's say out of the, the four walls of traditional institutions. Um, and we learned this where those became places where it was risky to be. Um, but eventually we're going to realize it's actually a heck of a lot cheaper to not have patients come from a societal standpoint, from even a healthcare delivery standpoint. Um, so I think we're sort of the, if we get on the general um, discussion of what's the value of telehealth, there are so many, or, or I should say at least um, giving care outside the walls uh, of institutions, there are a whole bunch of societal economic benefits. I think there's, a, there's an important decision to be made here around what has to happen and where does it have to happen. Um, and when we get into the idea of surgeries, for example, there's a, a major rethinking going on around should surgeries happen in a, hospi happen in a hospital, in a physician's office, um, in a purpose-built facility. So even there, when we get into, you need to interact with medical professionals, there's still a question of where exactly is the right setting for these to happen. I think, I think there's a whole spectrum of opportunities that pharma companies have with, with telehealth. If we're thinking about kind of quick wins and things that you can need to start doing now. Um, I think awareness and knowledge of, of telehealth companies and how that even works, who are the physicians who are involved in, in some of those platforms is very low in pharma companies. So start to even build your knowledge of that. Start to take into consideration in your targeting of physicians, whether they play a role in, 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 in telehealth and is there training or additional support that you need to provide them. So that's some very basic stuff that you could be doing today. Secondly, I'd say is make sure that, that if you have promotional materials, that they're kind of shareable via these platforms, that you're, if there's education and support that you can provide on the platforms, even paid ads are available on some platforms as well. I think there's, there's opportunities for, um, for, for pharma to get involved, uh, involved there. And then the next step, I think, is more, as Mark was saying, in terms of analytics and really reframing and thinking about um, the, the physician journey and the customer journey and how can we better support and automate that within telehealth in terms of protocols, additional education and things that we can provide to physicians to make sure that the outcomes provided through telehealth are, 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 are beneficial to us. And then there's the reimagined step where you're thinking about partnerships, you're thinking about kind of new ways of working between pharma and, and telehealth companies. But there's a lot that we can be doing even before we get to, to that step for just pharma and telehealth to be working more in sync together. So building on that point, David, let's go back to, to one of the, the topics that you raised earlier, thinking about commercial models. Um, and we've just talked about the patient experience and how that's going to evolve due to COVID and we're seeing the rise of telemedicine. What does that mean for uh, pharmaceutical and med tech companies in terms of their customer-facing field force? I think we're definitely seeing a trend towards digital, but what will that actually look like? And is that here to stay, or is this an interim solution and everyone's just waiting until they can go back to business as usual? I think when it comes to digital, it's, it's here to stay. I think it's not going to be something that, that reverts 
back to the way it was before. I think given that physicians have been used to receiving information differently from pharma companies for some time um, and you know managing without that face-to-face contact, I think it's it's unlikely that many of them will will need the same level of, of support or the same level of interaction that they've had with with pharma in the in, in the old world. So I do think digital is, is is here to stay. At the same time, I do see this conflict in some organizations, and as I said, they're almost being pulled in different directions in terms of wanting to make things more um, uh, Kind of digital and AI enabled, so the concept of next best action, next best engagement, and kind of really automating that that customer journey um, and having a really orchestrated campaign between field resources and your digital platforms and digital engagements. At the same time, I see some organisations who are really looking to really localise your the, the knowledge you have about customers and really equip uh, and train and, and coach your customer facing teams to really be working in a very kind of a partnership-based model with their with their, with their customers. Um, a lot of organisations are trying to do both these things, and to some extent, they're not mutually exclusive. But I do see a conflict in terms of which do we really want to be world-class at, and some organisations are kind of struggling to understand how these two can can work together. I don't think that COVID is accelerating a movement towards digital. I think it's just accelerating a movement away from in-person promotion. We did a study um, recently. Um, which actually sort of showed, we asked the respondents to think through what their engagement was like pre-COVID, post-COVID, uh, and during, or will be post-COVID, and during COVID um, with respect to digital and face-to-face. And digital sort of stayed the same throughout. Face-to-face went up from about 90% down to 30 and then back up to 60% of those who said that they would have that as a primary channel in which they engage. So, sure, so surely face-to-face is on the way down. I'm not sure digital's up, but obviously that puts greater importance on digital just in general. It also puts greater importance on the segments of one concept, which then feeds into the uh, customer-centric sort of digital revolution that I think you're, you're referring, referring to just in general. Now, I'm gonna have a bit of a dissenting view, and that's of course because my, uh, my view is much more related to um, the med tech world. And, and I'll tell you, first of all, the starting point of most med techs is extremely heavy on the in-person engagement between a field-based person and a clinician. Um, That in-person engagement even includes, often includes going into the surgery and either providing a service or providing support and and, um, clinical discussions during that. So I I think realizing that the starting point is quite different, um, I would say in general, the, the reliance on that single channel of communication with that single stakeholder um, was um, we learned an important lesson. Let's hope we learned an important lesson because on one day, suddenly, that entire tactic simply couldn't happen anymore. That way of marketing, of, of communicating with your, with, with your customer was just off limits. And um, so uh, we, we found just how few other mechanisms, as an industry, just how few other mechanisms we had really developed. And so I hope that the, there was an important lesson there where there's you know, 10% of sales suddenly resulted in zero impact um, because of a sudden decision. Now, uh, I, I have to admit what I've seen so far is so much eagerness to return to the old model that I worry a little bit 
um, that that lesson hasn't really taken the full impact that I hope eventually we will, we will take away from it. So one of the things that we didn't touch on was what are the skills that are required of, of these customer facing uh, reps uh, before it was using the more traditional one and now they're going to have an opportunity to create an even more orchestrated experience. David, you, you mentioned this as well. Um, what, what does that look like? What does it take to be successful in this new, new reality? I'll touch on sort of three broad kind of components. I think there's an element of coordination. There's an element of being flexible and savvy and trusting information that you have. And then there is the emotional element of how you engage, which might look slightly different. So from a coordination perspective, you rose the point, it's orchestration of, of the different channels. Actually, that's where we were headed anyway, to the point earlier on. It's just that we're gonna probably get there quicker, but in the face-to-face -face interaction with various different people, I'm gonna to have to actually even coordinate different roles, potentially even into the one call. Second piece is trusting the data. To the point earlier on, there may be a case now where I'm covering a broader um, set of customers or a broader span of geographies or um, time and the importance of time suddenly comes into when I call on someone in a way that it wouldn't have happened before in, previously. So now maybe I need to trust in the data that I'm getting even more and then be able to react and be flexible once I've fed that into my planning process. And then finally, there's the EQ bit and the emotional engagement piece. Um, this was always important, but I think it's much easier to establish some form of emotional connection when you meet somebody, particularly in that first instance. And so how can I really truly drive that engagement with somebody in the first instance in a remote way? Is there something that I can do more deliberately in terms of our best practices, establishing emotional connection? Or is there something that I have to do which maybe relies on bringing peers together to establish a connection between them and then I can connect more with the group remotely. So Brian, in the beginning, you mentioned value being increasingly important. Um, we have definitely been seeing this as a trend that's been intensified independent of COVID, but obviously it's accelerated as a result of this. What are your predictions for, for how this will evolve and what that will mean? A lot of our marginal healthcare dollar has been spent in um, treating very rare diseases, adding months to life, um, potentially easing um, suffering at the very end of life. Um, and suddenly through COVID, we've learned, and, and now I, I will admit I'm an American and my head goes a little bit to the U.S. situation, which is particularly, um, where this is particularly uh, uh, happening and acute. But a whole lot of money is being spent, and here we suddenly find there's some basics that are not covered. Um, I think we're seeing, for example, the people most at risk um, to complications from COVID or mortality from COVID are ones who have underlying conditions um, and some of the most basic underlying conditions. Um, and we're finding that we're lacking some of the most basic resources. Um, and that, that includes testing, of course, where um, a bit free and available testing has been a struggle, some more than others. Um, but it also includes personal protective equipment, which is um, a bit of a a surprising situation to be in, let's say. Um, and so I, I believe that there's a need to reconsider where the marginal dollar is being spent. Um, now, how does that actually play out? It's nice to say philosophically, but how does that actually play out when we get into the decisions that are being made day in and day out within a healthcare system? Um, I believe that there will be a higher burden of proof 
for, in my case, thinking a lot about um, medical technology, there will be a higher burden of proof for an intervention. Um, simply because, because the surgeon wants to do it, starts to be insufficient. Um, and it was already a trend that was, that was present where approval did not immediately lead to reimbursement. Uh, but I believe that that separation between the decision that something's safe and the decision that something should be paid for is going to expand. So I, I, I gave you a positive note around all of the data and how that can be used to guide decisions. But I also want to lay down a warning here. Um, we, we know that, for example, a whole lot of spine surgeries do not lead to a better outcome. Substantial percentages of peripheral vascular interventions maybe shouldn't have been undertaken. Um, so getting better guidance around what's the right time to do it, um, what's the right patient to do it, what's the right setting, how far to go. You can use data and real world evidence to do this. I believe instead of being a theoretical clinical discussion, it now becomes much more of an economic and health system discussion. As Brian mentioned the, the burden of proof. I think obviously data now is giving us the enabler of proof. Um, and so you will see whether that's on a particular asset or at a population health level, maybe there are some new opportunities for innovative contracts for performance-based um, pay that will kind of come through. Yeah, I agree. I think whether it's innovative contracts or, or other means, I think there's a lot of heightened willingness all around from government, from institutions to really partner collaboratively with, with, with pharma. Um, I think historically it's not something that pharma has always been great at, and there have been many co-promotions that have, uh, have proved that. But I think partnerships between pharma companies to really provide significant health benefits to a particular population, partnerships between pharma and governments, I think these are going to become increasingly common in the in the future as pharma looks to new ways to add uh, add value. It's interestingly enough, we held a, a global roundtable with some leaders from many of the, the top pharma companies. This was the topic that really came up. How do we use this particular moment to work together uh, in our interests and in the interests of the, of the patients as a whole? A lot of the discussion actually focused on it only takes one bad player, one bad actor um, to change this around. And they could be even a relatively small company. It doesn't have to be a company in this mix, but as soon as one rotten apple gets in there, it can throw the, the rest open. So you've mentioned this roundtable discussion that you did where the idea of partnerships with pharma and medtech are becoming much more common. So we know that there's willingness from different parties to work collaboratively with big pharma and medtech. What has this collaboration been like in the past and how do you see it evolving in the post-COVID world? Pharma as an industry has historically been really bad at this and we see it this a little bit, in, especially in collaborations between pharma and innovative digital companies. And often the big, big, often kind of European HQ pharma company comes along with their, their MSAs and their legal agreements of their teams of lawyers. And the little California health startup is, yeah, is not interested in that sort of partnership and just kind of gets frightened away. So I think pharma is trying to find ways of how can we almost kind of create separations within our own company so that we can have bits of the company where we are able to move quickly with those partnerships and be innovative and not have all the risk associated uh, with it. I think generally the topic of partnerships, I mean, and now I'm going to come from a medtech perspective, I think it's no different. Um, the e Even collaboration between pharma companies and diagnostic companies, even collaboration between where there might even be ownership stake has been really, really difficult. 
Um, and I don't know exactly the underlying reason why. I can tell you I've had a number of conversations more recently with medical technology companies talking about collaboration with tech companies. And what we find is there's this rush to, to partner but actually not necessarily a lot of clarity around what they're trying to get out of that partnership. And so I, I, I find myself wondering, is there, a, is there a playbook that we forgot to pull out of the library around how really partnerships should go? Is there something about the inherent to the structure of the industry where we're working or potentially an imbalance in power or conservatism, regulatory, I'm not sure. But the, the, this is one of those things that I think we need to get a whole lot better at a whole lot more quickly. Because um, if we go it alone on everything, and now I think I'm speaking for, for uh, major players in, in um, healthcare broadly, if we go it alone on everything, then what we're gonna find is a, a distinct lack of agility and a lack of certain capabilities that are required to, to compete in a, um, let's say, AI-enabled type of world that we've been discussing for the last period of time. Thank you, um, David, Mark, and Brian, for your time. We, we have time for, for final thoughts. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? I think what's really important now more than ever in light of COVID is to have real clarity as an organization about what you want to achieve. I think a lot of organizations are feeling pulled in so many different directions in terms of needing to increase their digital programs, build capabilities in advanced analytics, build more, a more empathetic sales force. They don't really know kind of where to start. So I think really having kind of a clarity around what you want to achieve as an organization and what you want to be best at. I think you can advance a lot of these things, but really trying to understand what, in which capability you're going to really differentiate I think that's a really important uh, step for companies to take it at the moment. Reflection from my side, I think it's the contrast to the contradiction between N equals one and N equals 100 million. So we need to be thinking about every individual customer and how to engage with them moving forward on any topic, whether it be COVID or, or that their therapy area of, uh, of focus um, at a very individual level when it comes to customer engagement but when it and when it comes to data and when it comes to patient choice but at the same point in time we need to be thinking about national health the impact of our treatment and the things that we do more holistically around that treatment on national health when it comes to value and when it comes to communicating our value prop proposition to the community i think my last comment here is um we're all going through tremendous pain for the COVID situation, but I think if there's a silver lining in it, we've learned some important lessons around having um, digital engagement, around building capabilities that are much broader than what we've historically relied on. I think we're learning a lot around um, how to keep patients, let's say consumers, people, out of institutions. And um, I hope that persists in a variety of forms. And I, I do also, um, hope that what we've learned here is how we allocate the marginal healthcare dollar um, is uh, in the right spaces. So for me, I think I, I want to take a bit of an optimistic tone that by the time we get to the end, there's some important things that I think the cold hard light of day that came from COVID is, is going to help us to clean up as an industry. COVID has accelerated many trends that were emerging in healthcare, leading to this inflection point. Trends like face-to-face -face no longer being the dominant channel to engage customers, or increasing pressure from shrinking budgets, making value even more critical to demonstrate. 
and of course the use of telemedicine via e-consults and e-visits, along with digital and connected health solutions to keep patients and healthcare providers safe without compromising on care. The future of telehealth is now our present. That brings new opportunities and challenges in how industry serves patients and other customers. Now's the time for pharmaceutical and medtech companies to decide how they want to evolve and partner with customers to be relevant in the future, to pick the spaces they want to go all in on to competitively differentiate versus the areas that require the minimum just to be in the game. So where do you want to play and where can you win? The time to answer those questions is now. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the ZS Associates podcast.